Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 7th, 2022. This is episode 3161 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Wednesday. That's our typical interview day for a topic for the Survival Podcast. And today we have Sherry Miller who is going to talk to us about Korean natural farming and indigenous microorganisms as well. This is a fascinating subject. It's about a 90-minute interview. This was mind-blowing stuff. People in the live stream version of this that we did on YouTube and the other video platforms were just going ape to each other with it. Um, this is incredible wisdom. And it really could be one of the most revolutionary things in small-scale agriculture. And that's you'll find as we talk about this, what it's really geared toward. It's geared toward the homesteader. It's geared toward the small commercial farm. The person with a tenth of an acre, commercial operation up to 40, 50 acres. Like that's the type of thing this is really, really geared for. And it works for everything. And it, it really does. It's, it's pretty amazing stuff. And Sherry is a wonderful person with a lot of wisdom to share. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsor of the day. Sponsor of the day is John Bush's Live Free Academy, and specifically, I wanted to let you know about something you can you can uh, you can look forward to doing this weekend if you want to, and it's only a ninety minute webinar, and it's with Nicole Awesome Sauce. Yes, John and Nicole have teamed up. They're going to do a fermentation workshop. We're going to go through two recipes that Nicole has been using that are her favorite recipes for fermented stuff. And then you'll be able to use those to basically ferment anything that you want to ferment. It's really awesome, and Nicole is a great teacher. I think it's like 47 bucks, And you can find out about it, you guessed where, at thesurvivalpodcast.com. It'll go out in the Daily Mail today, so you should totally be on the Daily Mail. Uh, it'll be on the website. It, it will have a link in today's episode show notes, which again, episode 3161. Again, Nicole Sauce, man, you can't ask for a better teacher when it comes to, you know, homestead food prep. And we're going to be talking about fermentation today in some respects as to building health on the land, but fermentation for the body is good as well. It's one of the, the most ancient forms of food preservation. And if you think about um, the work of Dr. Weston Price, <clears throat> who investigated the health of indigenous peoples all over the world, one of the things he said in his work was, every indigenous society has a fermented food that is traditionally made and prepared and consumed by that indigenous society. And this is a skill set that, like, you know, my grandparents knew this stuff cold. Their parents certainly did. I never got to know them. But we've kind of lost it in America, and you can start regaining your skills with some of these awesome webinars and training sessions from Live Free Academy. And again, who better than Nicole Sauce to teach you how to do stuff with homestead food prep? So definitely check that out. With that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest today. Again, her name is Sherry Miller, and we'll drop on into the live feed now. And we are live. I am excited about today's episode, folks. I have heard 
a lot about Korean natural farming over the years, and it's something that I know little bits and pieces about, but I've never gone into on a comprehensive level. So when I got Sherry Miller's application here to be on with us and talk about this, uh, it was really exciting. I had a, a guest named Steven Reisner uh, a few months ago who talked just a little bit about IMO, which is part of this discipline, and it really sparked a lot of uh, interest in the audience you, Sherry, your request to come on didn't come very long after that. I'm wondering if that had anything to do with you asking to be on the show. Uh, no, actually, I've been listening to your show, Jack, for for many years, not back to the Jetta days, but for a long time. And I very thought good. about coming on for a long time. And then when someone said IMO, I said, oh, I have to. <laughs> okay. Great, great. So sort of, but not really. That's awesome. Um Let's start off with, um, before we dig into the subject, what, what is your background, Sherry? Where do you, how did you get involved with just, I know you have like a, like a tea farm. Uh, how, how did you get even started in the world of, of agriculture? Well, um, my earliest memory was when I was two years old. And I know I was two years old because I had the chicken pox. And I was supposed to be inside getting better. But they found me outside in the tomato patch eating tomatoes because my grandpa, who was the gardener, said my job was to make sure the tomatoes were okay. So I was outside making sure the tomatoes were okay. And so he was, he was a master gardener and he took care of big estates and my parents started working right after I was born, so I spent most of my time on the estate they lived. And he would take me around and show me how plants worked. He showed me how they get got water. He said, if this plant is yellow, it needs water. If this plant is this kind of yellow, it doesn't have enough water. And look, mm. here's some antlions, and this is why this plant does that. And so he literally taught me when I was a toddler and then I got older and I wanted to be the next Jacques Cousteau, <laughs> like a lot of people my age. And I got into college and I was able to do a lot of um, graduate level, PhD level research as an undergraduate. And a semester before I graduated, the Reagan and Reagan administration decided that they were no longer going to fund any pure science. We weren't going to find out why and how the world worked. We were just going to fund projects that made people money. So all the jobs I was looking at in my last semester were suddenly gone. Mm. And so I threw myself for a few years into the family business and I suddenly found myself divorced and I decided well, people were now, they told me when everybody closed all of the research that I could wait until people died and retired. And now people were dying, re dying and retired, but I had a 25-year-old biology degree. So I decided I'll go back, get my master, get plugged back into the academic world. But in the meantime, I have this big farm. I need to do a commercial crop. And then I found tea. And I fell in love with tea, and I decided to make that my research project. Three years after that, I met Master Cho, 
who was another master who was like my grandfather. And he knew how plants grew and why things did this. And my grandfather wanted to find out how things grew in nature and do that in the garden because he saw this abundance in nature. And how do you do that without doing all the work? And Master Cho found the key ingredients that my, my grandfather had been looking for for decades. And I've, I've been looking for since then. So he found the pictures of how to mimic nature to grow food. And so here I am. So when we talk about natural farming, Korean natural farming, exactly what are we talking about? And as to Master Cho, I was like, when I read your thing and he said, you know, you met the founder of this, I was like, wait, wait a minute. I, I, I thought this was much older than, than it would be possible to meet the founder. I'm guessing a lot of these techniques are far more ancient than Master Cho, but he put it into this like combined discipline. Is it kind of the way you would say? Yes. It's a lot of traditional knowledge. Uh, married with modern technology. And he started in the early 60s, I think 64. And he had three teachers in Japan. He was a peasant farmer in South Korea, and he was a chicken farmer. And one of his teachers taught about enzymes and how they're catalysts and how plant processes are are the biochemistry of plants. And then his next teacher um, worked in, on the nutritive cycle and what plants need at different stages. And, and he took this program and he went all over the world. By the time he came to Hawaii, he had been in over 40 countries and had been doing it for about four years. So Hawaii was probably the last stop on his world tour. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, so Korean nat- natural farming is the system that he developed with his knowledge from his teachers. I guess this was concurrent with when Mill Mollison was developing permaculture and it was part of that whole movement. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so that's basically uh, natural farming would be the idea of growing food uh with nature and Korean natural farming is master chose specific technology. Okay. Okay. So it's an assemblage of these techniques and then an evolution of them. Um, yes. What problems can be solved using Korean natural farming? Well, isn't the Bill Molson quote, um, quote something like all problems can be solved in a garden? Yeah, it's yeah. Or the problem is like the, solu- the, the, the the problem is the solution as well, right? Yes, and you, and so you don't have um, a slug. A, you don't have a slug surplus. You have a duck deficiency. That is another way of exactly, stating exactly, exactly. And so, state the question again. I my mind is going. Too what, fast. what problems can we solve uh, specifically? Okay. you know, with with KNH, KNF. Well, we can save money, stop spending food, um, set, stop spending money growing food. Um, farmers used to be the producers, and now they're consumers, basically. You have to buy a lot of stuff to grow food. And so he wanted to help poor farmers so they didn't have to buy stuff that they could just grow food. So it helps economically. Uh, I 
when I was on my tea farm, I stopped buying all animal feed. I stopped buying all fertilizers, uh, any other things like wettable sulfur, diatomaceous earth. I, I stopped using all the time, and every year I noticed I used it less and less. Um, once you have a system integrated and your animals are working and your materials are recycling on site, then the workload goes down. So it's less work. They they talk about um, in the county where Master chose from uh, can do something like three three hundred chickens, um, fifty pigs, um, handful of cows have an orchard and gardens and have commercial crops and they do it easily without any outside help. So the, the labor is less. It um, builds topsoil. Every year the topsoil goes up. I noticed after a few years, my tea bushes were getting buried because the topsoil was piling up so fast and I actually had to dig the, the, tea out because it was just too much topsoil like just like Joe Salvinson had to raise his fences um what what else um yeah the the yields and the size of the produce are bigger they're uh, more healthy and they're better tasting they're high quality so it becomes a high-end product um when they started doing pigs in Hawaii, the chefs were crazy to get their hands on, on on the Korean natural farming pigs because the quality was just so out of this world. Um, I was getting, I, I had eggs from my chickens that was kind of a side side hustle for my tea. And at the time, organic eggs were selling for $4 retail and I could get $7 retail for my eggs. And that was without advertising just because of the quality of the eggs. Um, the animals are healthier. Um, once I started doing Korean natural farming, I never got another respiratory infection, for example. Uh, I didn't have mites anymore. Um, I just didn't have any health problems with any of my animals. And I didn't have to compost anymore. Uh, everything I fed went to the chickens or the pigs and the, the living floor system compost things so quickly that everything, you, you don't see the manure. There's no smell. There's no flies. You can't even see the manure. It, it dissolves so quickly. And so. Which makes perfect sense. Which that makes perfect sense because if you've ever taken a walk in the woods, even with a really heavy deer, elk, bear population, you don't walk around smelling animal crap, right? Like, like no, when you're in exactly. the true wilderness, like it, it's, it's gone. Like when you find things like deer droppings and you're tracking as a hunter, you, you can real quick tell this is incredibly fresh. This is like a week old or it's gone. I mean, it's just the way it works. Like there's soil yeah. organisms that eat everything. Yeah. And so I always had a place to put my, my compostables and I always had fully composted material available at all times. I just had to take a little bit of the barn floor out. I never took more than a third of a stall at a time, but I always had compost ready. I always had a place to put the composting material and I didn't have to compost. That, that was a lot of work that I didn't have to do. Um, what about plant diseases? How, how, what is the impact on plant diseases? 
Well, I just started seeing a lot of a lot of diversity in the insect population. A lot of um, beneficials came in, and when I walked down the tea field, there were so many creatures that the leaves would literally move. And I had hundreds, tens of thousands, even of ladybug beetles and and praying mantis, and you could see where a yellow wasp had been parasitized and was mummified, and there was just all kinds of life. And I'd, I'd gone sailing for a few days, and I came back, and I looked way down the tea row, and there was this big black patch all over the tea. And sure enough, it was aphids, and it was really bad, but I'd been away for a couple of di- days. I was really tired. So it took me a couple of days before I got around to dealing with the aphid infestation. And when I went to take care of it, I couldn't find it. Well, maybe I'm remembering the wrong tea row. No, they were all gone. But they were so thick when I first saw them, it was a black mass from uh, 100 yards away. It was so visible, it could see it 100 yards away. And two days later, there wasn't a single aphid. That's, that's pretty amazing, considering you didn't do anything, right? I mean, no, I didn't you, do anything. Exactly. Didn't do anything. How would you say it's different from things like organic farming or things like that? Because I think a whole be people listening to this say, is this just some form of organic farming? And I, it's not my discipline, and I could answer that. It's a very, it's a very different thing. Yeah, so uh, let's look at it from the point of view of how plants obtain their nutrition. So in farming, there's water-soluble, bioavailable, chemical nutrients that's put in the soil, and when it rains or it's irrigated, the plants uptake those nutrients, and they're fed that way. In organic farming, it's more natural. You're doing a compost pile typically. And you're letting the, the microbes and the soil organisms convert everything into bioavailable forms. You know, compost I call pile and pray. You make a pile and hope you did it good enough. And it takes a lot of work. You have to haul it to the site. You have to turn it and turn it and turn it. And then you have to haul it back to the gardens. And it... Um, it works, though, and the nutrients are available, more like nature. You put the compost and the plants can take up what they need. Um, there's a similar system created by Master Cho's son called Jadam. Uh, there's a lot of that around the Internet these days. What Jadam is is actually a form of organic farming, and it depends on making um, nutrient solutions in water. So like compost teas, but maybe more targeted. And it has the advantage of homemade inputs, so it is low cost. But what you're doing is you're putting these drenches on the plants and the nutrition is in the water. And just like chemical modern ag farming, plants went, have you ever seen a blue carnation, Jack? Yeah. Yeah. How do they get blue? Do you know? I'm thinking they feed them water that's got blue dye in it. Like when I was a kid in school, I'm so old, we did real science experiments, and we put celery in a glass full of food coloring, and then you watch the food coloring go up the celery, and you can make the celery blue or red. So I'm assuming some version of that thereof is how you make a blue carnation. I don't think they grow that way. 
No, they don't grow blue. That's exactly right. So that's what happens with Jadam or uh, these other liquid fertilizers is you, you're deciding what the plant needs. You've decided, you've looked and you know the science and this is what a plant, this is what my plants need. So that's what you make up in your water. You put it on the plants. They uptake that water and they don't have a choice to filter out that blue food coloring, do they? So one of the leading causes of pests in plants is uh, malnutrition or unbalanced nutrition and specifically over nitrogen. Master Cho calls these plants fat when they've got too much nitrogen. They put out chemical and electromagnetic signals that actually draws in the pests because they want to be taken down so that the healthy plants can grow. So the problem with Jadam is you're force feeding your plants just like in a conventional system. Um, so uh, it uh, permaculture is also very akin to natural farming. A lot of the design elements that they use is the same kind of things that Master Cho works with. So you're with Master Cho's method. There's there's two main components of action. That would be the soil foundation, which you make the IMO, indigenous microorganisms. This is a collection of soil microbes, and you collect the culture on hard-cooked rice. Um, you can substitute that, but rice is available and cheap. And you collect it, and then you saturate it with some raw sugar, and that puts it in a state of stasis so you can store it, and, and it stops the evolution of the culture. So now you have a culture of soil, and organisms, the whole ecosystem, the whole everything, it's in there. If you heard about it, it's in there. And so you then go through an amplification step and then you inoculate it with the native soil and put it back in a single installation on where you're going to grow food. If your soil is particularly bad, you might do that one week and then it again in a second week and then wait a week and go ahead and plant. So you've got your soil foundation. You've collected, amplified, and installed a complete ecosystem of soil biology, and you keep that mulch so that the microbes have habitat and um, some carbon sources to, to work with and grow. And so once you've got your soil foundation, then plants can, just like in nature, uptake any nutrients they need when they need them and in the amount that they need them. They get to make the decisions, not the science. And then the other component of that is using the nutritive cycle. So then you take plants and you do a wild aerobic fermentation, and this makes all the biochemistry available to the plants. Um, so, for example, if you want vegetative green growth, you take the very tips of fast-growing herbaceous plants like mugwort and you ferment that. And what you're using is the biochemistry, not the nutrition, because the nutrition, remember, is going to come from our soil. So it's actually the hormones and the enzymes and the cofactors and all the associated biochemistry of that plant stage in that life. So you give the plant what you want it to do. So when you want it to grow green plants, you do the green plant tips. 
um, you do green fruits when you want it to start forming fruits. And then when you want it to ripen, you would do one with ripe fruits. And so you just follow, you give it what you want it to do. And you do a spray, um, you formulate a little spray and you give them a mist like morning dew, just a little mist. And those biochemicals, because they're things like hormones, are going to signal the plant what to do. So you can keep a plant in vegetative state longer if you want to. You can force it to go into flower sooner if you want to. And so you control the life cycle with these weekly sprays. But the nutrition itself comes from the soil. That, that's an interesting take. You give it what you want it to do. Because I remember, you know, my grandfather being probably a lot like your grandfather, only instead of a master gardener, he was a bootleg coal miner. But he grew food to feed his family. And he understood the wilderness to feed his family. And we had chickens, and occasionally you'd get a cracked egg or something, and the chickens would eat the egg. And, you know, people would get upset about it and say they're going to learn to eat all the eggs or whatever. He's like, I've been keeping chickens since before you were born. They don't do that. And what he said was, if the egg's broke, it's a problem. If they eat it, it's not a problem. And, by the way, a chicken egg has everything you need to make a chicken. So if a chicken That's eats an egg, it's good for that chicken. There's a reason that they eat that. If that egg was broken in the place they were nesting, it attracts insects. It attracts predators. It's got to go. And that, that hen gave up that energy to make it. So reassuming that energy then is the chicken taking back what it takes to make a chicken. And it, it, it's, it's a similar philosophy from coal. You're talking about a Ukrainian immigrant that, that mined coal and, and was in World War II. But it's a very similar way of looking yep. at things. Um, you know, comparing it to permaculture, I think, is a little different than comparing it to, like, organic farming or something because those are, like, a set, a set of techniques where te- uh, permaculture is more of a design science. So t- permaculture is more like this giant amoeba that eats everything. It's like, oh, you have that. That's good. It, it doesn't hurt the earth. It doesn't hurt people. It returns surplus. Fine. We'll use that. Yeah. Right. So it, it's more like you, if you compare IMO to organics, it would be like, I guess, if you're in architecture comparing brick structures to steel frame structures where architecture would use either one of them. And I think that's a good way to think about it. I think a lot of people ask me questions at times that show that people don't think that way about permaculture because they'll say, well, I don't know if I should do permaculture or, uh, you know, aquatics. Where there's a whole, there's a whole day on aquatics in a PDC, right? Like it's just, it's, it's just right. a piece, right? So uh, Lawton calls it like, uh, items of clothing in the wardrobe and you pick what works. And it's a fascinating way of looking at things. Um, can you tell us who was this really designed for? I think one of the things that really ruined organics, because organics in of itself is not a terrible thing, but it ended up like abducted and co-opted by commercial production. So you can have an organic chicken today, and all that means is it was provided with organic feed, maybe given a little bit more access to outside air. And it, it, it is a totally detrimental thing, but then you can find an organic gardener that's doing a really beautiful thing. Um, and I think organics was kind of designed for the small producer and became co-opted as a marketing brand by big ass. Who, who, who was this really designed for? Was this designed for commercial production, small production, all of the above, indigenous type, you know, like uh, agrar- agrarian production? What was really the target for this? The target is basically the, the home farm, small uh, farmsteads. 
and uh, it, backyard gardeners can use it. It has been scaled up to some commercial operations that do really well with it. Um, it's it's adaptable. It's it's um, there's something I call the Cho conundrum because he says things must be done exactly this way, but you must adapt it to your own system. Mm. So how do you do that? Well, you have to understand what the principles are and apply the principles to your unique situation. So uh, I think the sweet spot, though, is the 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 homestead, the the family farm. It's interesting. What, what I love about it is it is of all the things I've looked at, the thing that produces the closest to the level of results that Masanobu Fukuoka got. But I can find people that did it other than him. Like that's the yeah. thing. Like Fukuoka did amazing things, but even his kids couldn't make his farm run without. Like without him, it went away. And one of the things I've been impressed with is how many people I've met that have used aspects or full-on, complete Korean natural farming and have had success and have had replicatable yeah. success. But that's what I've seen too. It's been at you know kind of a smaller level. I think there, I think there is a size that things begin to break down at, especially if we're talking about true cultivation. I think you can, you can holistically graze a million acres. I, 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 you can, if you have enough animals and you move them the right way. But if you're talking about this integrated type system where you're growing vegetables, you're raising animals, you, and you're in this integrated system, I think there's a, a capacity. And I think you could do a million acres, but you would need, you know, half a million homesteaders. Each doing, you know, a couple acres. I think that is much better for for the for this and for many other systems that, that work very well at the same time. Yeah, well, you have to consider that material cycling is one of the major components, mm. and so that's why there's animals in the system. And if if you can't have animals, then you need at least to have worms or black soldier flies or even a bokashi bin. You know, you need some some way to cycle your materials, and so animal integration is is a key component of of using this system. Yeah, Seth Holzer said, if you don't want to do the pigs work, you don't. If you don't want pigs, you have to do the pigs' job, right? That's right. So that, yeah, yep. that's 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 what I say about animals all the time. Why do you have these animals? Because they do a lot of work. I don't have to do. It. That's why, right? Because they run. The grasshoppers come every year. Every year, grasshoppers come in in the summer. It's just. You know, we get a drought and grasshoppers pop up everywhere. I have no grasshopper problems. I have a lot of high, high nutrient, uh, duck poop everywhere, but I, I don't have any grasshopper problems because if, if there's one grasshopper, 10 ducks will, will fight each other to eat that one grasshopper. Animals are definitely key. How big is your, is your operation? How large is, is your tea operation? Well, I, I've left the tea farm. It was okay. 20 acres. Okay. That's, that's fairly large, but it's not huge. It's not, that's come. I think we use the word commercial a little bit weird today. Like t- technically my farm is a commercial farm because we sell product. But I think yeah. when we, we start thinking like commercial farms, we're, we're talking, you know, thousand acres type operations. That's, that is a very small holding relative to the size of the ag market or the, just the tea market. Well, in Hawaii, it was a more typical size of a farm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's places that have like, totally different climates, but they're kind of in that same space size differential even today. They didn't go full out. 
so New England, if you look at New Hampshire and Vermont, you're, you're looking at most of your little farms are, you know, 20 acres, a big one's 50. There's a lot of them that are 10. I think a big part of what that is though is terrain, right? It's, it's really easy to farm like a thousand acres when it's a flat square. It's a little bit different when you've got, you know, these significant elevation changes. And that's probably the only thing that New Hampshire and Hawaii have in common is that elevation. <laughs> It, yeah, it, it makes you think a little differently. Like, how did you go up there? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I imagine you were kind of interior with with what you were doing. You weren't like on the coast, not with tea. I mean, I don't really know tea uh, I, production, but I I was four miles up from the coast on okay. the slopes of of Mauna Kea, so it was a steep hill. So we were at about a thousand feet, twelve hundred feet. Very cool. So um, you mentioned a term there, bakashi bin. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I've never I've never done a lot about it. It's um, it's done like a worm bin. It can be done in the house. It can compost anything. It's basically uh, microbes that do the uh, fermentation. It's a Japanese technique. I I can't really talk to it because I've never done it. Okay, okay. But it's something similar to a worm, but it's just not worms. Okay. We'll have to, yes. have to look that one up. Um, can you give, like, an overview of Master Cho's protocol? What does Korean natural farming look like as a farmer or gardener? Um, what does is, what is the actual implementation look like? If someone's going to go start doing this, what does it look like? Well, I... I kind of covered that a little bit already. You want to get the soil foundation set up. You want the microbes in the soil. You want a balanced ecosystem. You don't want to just add, oh, I heard this this microbe is good, and I know I need fungi, so I'm going to put some fungus in there. Uh, you need a balanced ecosystem. You need the whole thing. So IMO is, is perfect for that. And so then the plants can use the microbes to get what they need from, from the soil itself. Dr. Ingham talks about how almost every soil on earth has everything plants need. And so um, we, we don't worry about nutrient deficiencies. We worry about bringing the soil back to health. And I was listening to, um, I can't remember. I, have you heard of John Kempf? No, he's in, I'm very familiar with uh, in, Dr. Kingham, but I don't know that person. Uh, he he's in the region agriculture world, and he does um, plant sap analysis, so way beyond the BRICS index. He's looking about if we do this to the plants, how does the sap change? And he works with a lot of you know like Greg Judy and um, some of the big regen agriculture people and he was talking about how and I don't remember who he was interviewing he's got a podcast he interviews some really really interesting people and they were talking about how over time they would come find they would do um, chemical analysis of the soils and how it changed over time and after a while elements would show up that were never there before and where did they come from? Did was it always there and they couldn't was it because it came from the sands that drift over from the Sahara Desert and land? Um they don't know. 
But the point is that eventually all these elements that plants need tend to be there. And so you just let the microbes work with the plants because that's how nature works. Even pH, when you look at a root hair, the area around the root hair where the exudates are, if you can, if you're in really acidic soil and your plants don't like acidic soil, if you've got healthy microbes in the soil, they can create a cocoon around the plant roots that keep that plant root in the perfect pH for that plant. So you, you're, let, you're turning all these processes back over to nature. You're not worrying about so much details. You're not trying to micromanage the plants. You have the soil foundation, and you're, then you're good to go. And then you use the weekly sprays to direct the growth for human healthy food. So that's the basics. And then you want to integrate the animals so that you're, you've got a place to put all of your compostables and a place where you can get some composted mulch to put back on the plants. That would be it in a nutshell. And what was that gentleman's name you just mentioned? I want to look him up and add some of his resources to the show notes. John Kempf, K-E-M-P-F, I believe. Uh, he, he does have a firewall now, so most of his stuff is behind a paywall. Okay. So most of his stuff is now behind a paywall, but he's still got a lot of really good free resources in his podcast. All right. So um, th- there's an interesting thing in there, you know, back to Fukuoka. He called his method do-nothing farming. And, yep. th- and he also said there's a lot of work in do-nothing farming. But – the idea being here that primarily we have one real job, care for the soil and the microorganisms. And if you do that, then everything else comes off of that soil food web. It, that, that's what I'm hearing. Like even when we're talking about animals and mulch and, and integration of them into the system, in the end what we're doing is we're cultivating the soil. And then the soil cultivates yep. the plants. Exactly, Yep. But um, the the plant the the animal bedding is is probably uh, a real key component as well. Okay. So can we talk about that just it's a little a bit? Like, I keep chickens and ducks. They live in a coop because if I don't put them in a coop at night, then things will come and eat them. And I use straw <clears throat> bedding, and I use a deep bedding. I just keep adding it, and basically about once a year, I end up with a bedding of it that deep. I bring it all out. Uh, my composting method is very, I don't know if you're familiar with Johnson Sioux. It's, it's basically a Johnson Sioux method. Um, I build a couple, three big things of it and it, it's a big fungal breakdown and it, it just does its own thing. I don't ever turn it. I don't ever touch it. It's, it's beautiful compost. Um, what, what is, what does it look like with Korean natural farming? Are we, are we pulling that bedding out more frequently are we spreading it out and not doing anything? What, what, what is the difference there? Um, the difference is the do-nothing farming method. <laughs> you don't really do anything. Um, you build it, and you um, feed the animals in there, and then about once a month I add more bedding material, and okay. then I take out up to a third from a stall as I need it. But um, oh. it's inoculated with the same microorganisms that go into the soil. And so you it becomes a living spread out over time. You take a bit, not all. So I leave yeah. myself one great big job a year, 
and you spread that job out by taking a third at a time as needed across time with no real schedule. It's just, I'm going to go take it. We know that they're in there doing their thing, right? So since they're in there doing their thing, all the buggies and good things and good guys are in there, and then we'll go apply that. Um, but it sounds like, so you say you feed them in there. Yeah. So are they confined, or is that what? What you're doing? Yeah, I, I, I used to let them free roam and then one, one disaster was the last straw and that's it. Uh, <laughs> you buggers are getting locked up. I would let them out in the afternoon when I was out and walk, working the farm and, and could keep an eye on them, but I didn't let them out. And when I left the farm, I hadn't cleaned out the barn in seven years. And I still couldn't see any manure. There was no smells. There was no flies. It was dry and crumbly and smelled kind of like bread. Never cleaned it out. Interesting. Interesting. Um, can you go into like maybe some specifics? Like it sounds like a very integrated discipline. It probably takes time to truly learn and come up with a holistic system, but it's other things that a person listening to this podcast could start doing right away? Well, I would say that building your soil biology is probably the best thing you can do no matter what you do. And if you don't want to go through learning the IMO technique, you can do what my grandfather did. And it's not as effective, but it does work. And he had a place under the trees where he would put piles of leaves. Every time he raked leaves, he would put them in this pile. And then he had a set of three screens, each smaller than the next. And then every once in a while, he would shovel it up on the first screen. And if it fell through, it would... And then he would shovel it through the middle middle screen and it would be smaller. And then by the time it went through the third screen, now he's got some composted leaf mold that he can use. Um, He was on a state, so he couldn't do it. He had to have it hidden and neat and tidy for, you know, these were um, the uber rich. So they don't want trash around. So composting your leaf mold and then adding that is the old-fashioned method of doing that that's so i would do that that's similar to a method that nick ferguson teaches and i've used as well um you know you're going a little further than your own property here but like he says if you're taking a walk in the woods and you see a a branch that's got a bunch of fungus on it grab it bring it home and he just builds a giant pile of this stuff and keeps it moist and throws the tarp over it and lets that stuff just sit there. And very, he wasn't as integrated with the fines, you know, and, and screening, but just basically take off the bottom and crumble into your ground because you're taking all these fungi and bacterium that your local biome is naturally producing and you're cultivating it and you're integrating it and you're increasing diversity. So I guess that's a very similar maybe a little bit more low-tech, redneck way of doing things. Yeah, that would work. Yeah. But then you could um, probably start combining some of y'all stuff with, like, the, the you know, cultivation on rice with that, right? Like, you, if you're doing these piles, um, would that be a good place? Like, when you, I, I don't really know the technique. I've never gotten deep down into it. Um, but my understanding is, like, you're taking this rice that you've done certain things to and you're putting it in some kind of a box and you're setting it 
in certain areas, like certain areas are more prevalent if you want to cultivate fungi or bacterium. Like with that type of technique, would that be a good place to do that? Well, let's just walk through the process really quick. So where okay. you're going to collect it needs to be an area that is local because okay. you want this. Let's hold there a second. The let's hold there one plant. second. What does local mean? Is local within a mile, 10 miles, 10 feet? You know, like obviously 100 miles is not local, but is local around you? I mean, what's local? I would say I would define it as being in the same watershed. Okay. So if you cross a stream, you're in a different ecosystem. Okay. And, okay. and so uh, he teaches about finding a barren spot, and the idea is if you go up a little bit in an elevation, soil and nutrients have washed down over the years, and so it, the nutrition in that spot is more sparse. And so it'll be the same kind of biology in the soil, but they have to work a little harder. Okay. And so if you don't go up in elevation, you want to play, find a place where they have to struggle just a little bit. Okay. And if, if you're growing, um, vegetable crops, you're going to want to get it. Where does the vegetables grow in the wild? They're, they're going to be in a pasture. They're going to be in the edge of a field. Are they going to be in the woods themselves? Are they going to be in a savanna? Or are they going to be in the deep forest? So then you don't have to worry about your people talk about the balancing the, Bacteria and the fungi, but there's all kinds of other things in there. So I remember when Dr. Ingham came and saw Korean natural farming for the first time and, and she looked at IMO through a microscope, her jaw literally dropped because she had never seen a compost pile that was so balanced. But that was because it was a natural balance, not an artificially piled up one. So you want to collect from an area of the type where your your crops would grow. If you're growing lettuce, you don't want to collect it in the deep forest mm. because that's going to have a lot of really strong decomposing um, fungi and it's going to bring in a lot of fungal diseases and you'll have more trouble with lights and, and fusarium and, and that type of thing. So you collect from an area where you want. And so what you're doing is you're getting hard-cooked rice. It's best done in a rice cooker. Um, okay. One what to one. Rice? Let's let's make sure we tell people like you know. The, the if I'm going to cook rice to eat, Calrose is the best form of rice to use, but any will do. Uh, I, if I'm cooking to eat, I'm going to put two cups of water to one cup of rice. If I'm okay. doing hard cooked rice, I'm doing one cup of water, one cup of rice. Okay, so one to so, one versus a two to one on the water. Okay, got you. All right. Yeah, so it's a little al dente. Um, you kind of want to get the same moisture as you would like in a compost pile. You don't want it to be soggy and you don't want it to be dry. You want it to be just right. So you put that in a woven basket. Um, some uh, people make hard um, cedar boxes, but it needs slats on the bottom so that the microbes can get in. And right. then you put a cloth over the top or if you've got uh a pandanus woven basket, they actually have lids that can go on. Uh, you want the rice to be one-third air and two-thirds full of the rice. So that's the correct breathing. If you've got too much air, you're going to get anaerobic stuff. And we want to keep 
we're on team aerobic, so we want to keep all of our, our inputs on, on the aerobic side. So you take it out into a place where you've seen some, some little white hyphae in the leaf, leaf litter that, and you dig down into the soil a little bit. Then you put the cover on it and you pile that on top of the box. And then you probably want to put something sturdy over the top to keep out rain and to keep animals out. Now, if if that's not possible, you can collect the the leaf litter and a little bit of soil and do it at home on your porch or in your your garage yeah. or something. Um, so you let that go. It it's maybe three, four, or five days depending on on the weather in the summer, and it might take seven to ten if you're doing it in the winter. It's really hard to do in the winter in temperate climates, but it can be done. And so. You don't open it up to check it. You feel underneath, and if you feel underneath and it feels warm, then you're ready to go. And when you open it up, it should look ideally like cotton candy on the top, white cotton candy. If it's got a little bit of spots of color, that's okay, but if it's got lots of dark greens and dark blacks, that means it's got a lot of anaerobic stuff in there, and then you need to start over. So once you've got your collection, you've got your your fuzzy little rice, and you, when you break it open, you can see it goes all the way through the rice. It turns into like a cake, and then you're going to mix that with an equal um, amount of sugar. So if you've got a pound of rice, you're going to use a pound of sugar, and you massage that together, and that stops the it undergrows like a uh, succession planting, you know, when a forest starts out and an event as a, as a grass field and eventually it becomes a thick forest. So the microbes do the same type of thing and you want to stop the collection. So it stops at that early stage and you don't want it to keep growing. You want to get, make it dormant and then it can be stored in that way for years and years. And then the next step would be the amplification step. And Master Cho uses uh, brown um, rice bran. Uh, in Hawaii, we couldn't get rice bran. We were using mill run. Uh, when I, I don't have either of those here in Vanuatu, so I'm using, um, I've been using root crops, but I'm thinking that coconut might be a better, coconut meal might be a better solution. But it's, um, the rice bran has got some carbohydrates in it. It's got some nutrition in it and, and some and some oils. So what you're doing is you're mixing a spoonful of this IMO2. When you collect it, it's one. When you okay. mix it with sugar, then it's dormant. You've got IMO2. And okay. now IMO3 is the amplification stage. So you would mix... A spoonful of that with a couple of the other inputs like brown rice vinegar and some of the plant juice from the, 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 the fast, like a mugwort. And you put it in water and you pour it on your, um, pile of rice bran or whatever you're using. And you want it to get like that 60 to 70% moisture content okay. where you Squeeze a handful, no water comes out, but it'll kind of together. hold together. In the, yeah. And then you're going to cover that with something breathable <sighs> like some straw or some burlap and keep it in the shade. It should be done uh, on a dirt surface. 
um, rather than like a, and then you turn that and it takes two, three days and those microbes will completely invade that rice bran and it'll turn into like little chunks and crumbles and it'll, it, you want, don't want to get too hot. You want to keep the temperature kind of mild and then it'll, um, be ready for the next step. And then you get an equal amount. Say you've got to use a 60 pound bag of, of rice bran. And so now you want to bring in 60 pounds of soil from where you're going to do your planting. You want to get it into the soil and you want to get the microbes to be the exact ones that will do well in your soil. You want to acclimate it. And so you mix that in with your native soil and you do the same thing and you let the microbes get all big and, and it makes little clumps and lumps and, and then that's what that would, now you're to IMO4. So first you collect it on rice, then you, um, stabilize it with sugar, raw sugar, and then you amplify it on rice bran or something similar and then you add the native soil and now you've got your IMO4 and that's what you install on your field. And it only needs to be installed once. You don't have to do it all the time. Um, you can add some biochar at this point if, if you want to. That's always helpful. And um, so that's the basic IMO process. I think the thing that strikes me the most about that description is that we start out with this very small amount of, of rice, yep. you know, maybe a pound. And so we're talking something that, you know, it's for those that are on the video, it's this big. And we're actually ending up with enough to make literal tons. Cause when we talked about, you know, 60 pounds of rice bran, we didn't put that whole, I guess now two pounds of, of starter into that 60 pound. We put a small amount in there. Right. Yes. And then that amplified. And then we brought in 60 pounds of soil from the area that we're going to spread on. So now we ended up with 120 pounds of a additive. But we actually started out with a pound of rice. Well, you're only using a spoonful of that. Well, you're only using a spoonful of, of the pound. Right. So we can like I say we can make literal tons of it. So we started with a pound of yeah. rice. We gave up a tablespoon of it and we ended up with 120 pounds of soil. Yeah. Amendment. And yep. then what is kind of like an application rate at that? Like how far would 120 pounds, like what kind of area would that cover? Um, well, you, you put it maybe a quarter inch deep. Um, I, there's, there's a application rate. I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but that would do maybe quarter an acre. Oh my God. Yeah. Just off the top of my head. So that's a that's an entire suburban lot. Yeah. So we have a lot of out here on a tenth of an acre. If you only got the IMO, some people struggle making it. um, But if you only get it to work good once, that's all you need. Yeah, that's just pretty amazing. Um, What what are what are your thoughts on people that might say, you know, you start talking about cultivating molds and funguses and bacteria and we live in a world full of germ Karens and they're Lysoling everything and they say, well, is this safe? 
Everything in Korean natural farming is safe. Everything in Korean natural farming is edible. And a lot of the products are used directly by humans for human health. Now, this can't be the, said for his son system, Jadon. A lot of his inputs are, he does anaerobic fermentation, and that's where a lot of the pathogens are. He's got a couple of really dangerous chemical processes that he he does. And so um, people have actually gone to the hospital doing Jadon. Korean natural farming, you kids can eat it. Your dogs can eat it. You can bathe in it. You're not going to have problems. It's completely safe. In fact, one of the ways you tell your inputs are in good quality is tasting and smelling because your body is the ultimate instrument to tell what the quality of that input is. I remember Elaine Ingham at a concert we both spoke, a concert, a a, a conference we both spoke (laughs) at, and uh, she's, somebody said something about, well, would you really drink the tea from your compost? And she said, if I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it on the plants. Yeah. That was an interesting thing. And she's on the same team with that as far as the aerobic versus anaerobic. Like, anaerobes are bad. And she's like, when, when she says, like, one of her pet peeves is when somebody that's well thought of says, yeah, it's okay if it goes anaerobic for a while. She's like, no, that's like saying it's okay if it's cancerous for a while. Like, you know, like if, if you don't do that, that's that's never a good thing. I think there's some exceptions to that with we can use resources that come from anaerobic sources. Like if we have to dredge a pond or something like that, we can we can change that yep. so that it's useful. But we, we shouldn't be doing that intentionally like that. That's a bad idea. All kinds of bad things. And what I found fascinating yep. about her work was you could look at the microbes in the soil and immediately go, oh, this is anaerobic. I don't care if it smells bad or not. Like you look at that microbe, that microbe wouldn't be here if we weren't in an anaerobic environment. Or we were recently in an anaerobic environment and this thing is still here. And I found that really, really fascinating. Yeah. So what's the best way for people to learn about Korean natural farming? Where, where should somebody start? Well, I would say there's a lot of confusion and misinformation online, and that's one of the reasons I'm trying to step up and and clarify the system, because when you start clouding things together, it gets really confusing. In, In fact, learning directly from Master Cho was a bit confusing because he understood his system really well. And, you know, we're going through translators and it was, um, it was a big mind dump to learn from him. And, and so, um, I've been working with, with people on my farm and explaining to them. I've, I've learned ways to explain it in ways that, um, clarifies the system so that it's, it's not so, um, confusing. So, um, I, I would say go to my website. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a great answer. You know, that's a great answer. You have a book coming out soon, right? Yes, I'm working on a book just for this purpose. I'm going, um, I'm taking all the information I learned from Master Cho and from our advanced training when I became um, certified teacher 
for his system and all of the writings that I can find. And I've taken all the pieces apart and I've reassembled them so that when you go through the system, it makes more sense. Because uh-huh. the way he teaches it, it's it's like a scrambled egg. <laughs> it, it's a little bit confusing. And so the first book is almost done. It's almost ready to go to the editors. And that'll be kind of an overview of the system. And then the next one I'll do will be how to get started, what to do in the first year, and what to learn first, and um, so you're not overwhelmed. I think and you can learn how. Go, go ahead. Uh, you can learn how to do some of this stuff online, but you might be told something wrong or um, something unsafe. I think that's wise. There's a, you know, we we talked a little bit about JM for a while, and it sounds like they have, a, you know, some overlap. And what happens is people online decide that they're experts because they have a YouTube channel with a lot yes. of people that listen yes. to them. So that may, that by proxy makes one an expert, right? Like <laughs> I have a million subscribers, hence I am an expert. And they'll say things, and they don't tamper it with. I don't really know this thing. I just think this thing, and like. I don't know, to me, one of the most humbling moments of my life was right after I started my podcast way back in the Jetted days. And I'd get an email from somebody and said, Jack, because you said to do this, I did this. And I would immediately went, whoa, I need to be really clear at all times. This is what I know. This is what I think. This is a fact. This is an opinion. And yeah. I think you're right. There are a lot of people out there that don't respect that boundary. It's all about more more revenue or more views or more shares. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that's dangerous. And I, I think you go to people that have trained in a discipline if you want to be trained in a discipline. I also think that, like, you mentioned, like, it's like scrambled eggs or something. I think there is, for most people, to be able to become competent in, in a thing, we need to start at a clear beginning, a beginning that makes yes. sense. Like these are the things to do first. These are the things to do second. These are the things to do third, fourth, and fifth. And now we have uh, a functioning partial system. And now you can implement that. And now let's go do six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now let's add that to the system because that's yes. how the human mind works. And it's just, it's definitely how the Western mind works. And there is a, philosophical difference in in general thinking between Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy. It's not limited to religion and spiritualism. There's an entire way of viewing the earth. And I think it's good for a Westerner to go to the East and to learn the way of thinking of the East or vice versa. But I don't think it works for general training. I think if you, if you want to learn an Eastern discipline, you send a Westerner to the East, you let them learn and you translate it to Westerner. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to do here. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forgot what I was going to say there, Jack. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I want to ask you a totally different question, right? Like where, where are you now? I mean, in your notes, you say it's the fourth world. I'm not even sure I've lived in the third world. Maybe it was the fourth world and I just didn't know it cause I was spoiled in a soldier. Um, where is the fourth world and how, how did, how did you end up there? In, in the middle of like this, you know, shut down of society. Well, we we knew that that uh, the world was not not doing well, and, and the whole global economy is a house of cards. And I 
still to this day don't know how it hasn't fallen yet, but somehow they keep it propped up and, and going forward. Um, I don't know how long that could go, but we, we, society has gotten kind of ugly and, um, we, we just got tired of it all. And, uh, I've been looking at moving to Fiji. Uh, and my husband, when I met him, he had been sailing around the world and he looked at all these places to go and he chose Vanuatu. Um, the Republic of Vanuatu is in the South Pacific. It's below the Solomons and above New Zealand. And it's next door to Fiji with, um, Australia on the other side. So it's down in that corner of the South Pacific. And when we moved here almost seven years ago, it was a least developed nation, fourth world. And then um, right after COVID hit, it actually graduated to third world. So I'm in the third world now. (laughs) Don't notice any difference. I think it's the only second nation that's graduated to a developing nation. So I'm now in a developing nation. There's only about 300,000 people in the whole country. There's not a single traffic light in the whole country. There's no fast foods or box stores or chain stores or any of that. No fertilizer. Um, There's islands that uh, don't allow any imports of any fertilizers. And some don't even allow tin food because, you know, the, the native people can't survive on a, on a modern Western diet and rice has given them all diabetes. Mm. So, um, we didn't want to be where we were. I had heard of Vanuatu from a, a friend in the eighties who would come here to visit when she was doing financing in um, Australia. And this back in those days was an offshore banking capital. And, uh, since independence, the the World Monetary Fund and the World Bank of trying to control what goes on here, but it's largely it has a parliamentary government. It there's no property taxes, there's no income taxes, there's no corporate taxes. Um, you're free to do what you want to do. It's free country still. So um, when when COVID hit and we were here, our our life changed absolutely not at all, other than we couldn't leave the country. But why would we want to do that? <laughs> at, at the point that that was going on, no, you don't want to leave. Um, yeah. There's a, a good friend of mine. Uh, I, I don't know what the hell he calls himself now. He has all the different stage names he changes. His name used to be Vin Armani. And he, right when this all started, he was like, the hell with this. And he went to Saipan, which is it, it, in many ways geographically a similar place, but it's actually a, it's a U.S. territory, so a U.S. citizen right. can just go there and live there. And and uh, he, he's had some similar stories. I don't think it's quite as totally divorced from society as where you're at. Um, but yeah, that's I was unfamiliar with the location. I like that. There's no this tax, that tax, the other tax. This yeah, yeah okay, that's that sounds good. And the, the thing about taxes, it, it's not so much I mind paying them; it's what's done with them. Like the more you give a government, the bigger the government can be. So like if you take it yeah. to, to farming or permaculture or Korean natural farming, like what you wouldn't do if you had a bad thing is feed it. You would feed the good things. So like you're feeding the state, the state grows. Like and and so I would be interested in your thoughts at this point on things like 
peak food, food sovereignty, the war on small farms, even in some places, really wars on home gardeners, because, you know, this 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 method you're teaching, this this I should say more of a system than just a method is is geared toward all of these things. And and you obviously care about liberty because you completely upended your life for the cause of liberty yes. in your own life. So yes. what are your thoughts on those type of topics? Well, when when COVID hit here, the the first thought is, oh my, tourism, because tourism was a very visible part of the economy. It turns out it was only 17, even though it was the most visible. So at first they um, uh, tried to help out the tourism industry. They would pay the wages of the workers who couldn't work because there were no tourists here. And then they realized this was going to be a long-term situation and they completely changed face and started doubling down on helping agriculture. And so they make sure that the kava industry and the cacao industry and the coconuts and all, and they help the farmers get um, seeds, you know, they'll, they'll propagate a bunch of, of um, sandalwood, for example, and get that into the hands of farmers. They made sure that farmers had cows to grow. And um, so we will never go hungry here. No matter what happens, we might not eat what we want to eat, but we'll never go hungry here. There's so much food here. And, I would say food uh, security I'm, is security. Like if you have food security, everything else almost takes care of itself. Well, that was one of the things I just got so tired of fighting in Hawaii. I worked really hard to try and get Hawaii to be food sovereign place. It, it had, the coast that I was living on had enough land to grow all the food that was needed for the entire state. Over a million population plus, um, I don't know, a couple million tourists that would come every year. But it was all, it was 85% imported food when I left and I think now it's up to 90. 90% of the food comes from 3,000 miles away or 10,000 miles away. Not Hawaii. What do you think of how insane that is? Do you know how many people that are homesteaders in the rest of uh, the United States, you know, temperate region, North America, that are like, oh, my God, I wish I lived in Hawaii because you can grow anything. You can grow literally anything. There's no, you're not going to have your plants die when it freezes. You have a year-round growing season. It rains most of the year. Like yeah. you have incredibly fertile volcanic soils and and yet they're relying on us in Asia mostly to feed them when they're literally surrounded with some of the most fertile land and I would yep. say honestly the most mind blowing food production system of indigenous peoples that I've ever examined in my life was developed in Hawaii. The systems that ran vertically up the entire slope and had a certain point, once you went over a certain elevation, you didn't touch it or they cut your head off. And it ran all the way down to the coast and growing fish in lagoons that were saltwater fish that were let in every year and then grown out. And then like the entire island was already self-sufficient with no electricity, no petroleum, no nothing. And so you have to say that, Living in a situation like they are now in Hawaii, 
instead of progressing with technology, they basically regressed with oh, yes. progression of technology. The more technology they got, the less the less stable they are. Well, it's it's protecting the corporate interests and and the money machines and and biosecurity is really strong in Hawaii, but only going out. So they let all these terrible, invasive, destructive pests and disease come in. And every time they would come in, it would be another industry down. You know, the, the bananas are struggling. The papayas are struggling. They had to completely eliminate sugar production. It was the most effective sugar production in the entire world ever, ever anywhere. Hawaiian sugarcane was the most effective sugarcane system ever devised, gone, because, well, it couldn't compete with slave labor. But um, it's it's a business-unfriendly state. It doesn't like farmers, and I just got tired of the fight. I remember one year, I think it was 2006, I was at the State Agricultural Convention, and the keynote speaker, I, for, I forget the gentleman's name, he talked about, how we have passed peak food. And what he means by that is not the cost of food per se, but how much a percentage of your monthly budget do you use to buy food? said, food will never be as cheap ever again, ever, ever, as it was before. That increasingly it will take a bigger chunk of your monthly budget every year. And what he said, the answer is, how do we feed the world? Um, what he said was, the, you know, they've consolidated these big, massive agricultural cooperatives where, you know, before if somebody, if there was a <clears throat> salmonella outbreak somewhere, it might, it was a local thing. Now, one guy doesn't wash his hands, works in the lettuce packing factory, and now it's in 45 states. So that's not safer, and it's not better. And he said the way to make it work is to have smaller holdings and consolidate together. So like home farms that work together so that they can get the the benefits of scaling up that the big businesses do and um, medium-sized farms. But he said large farms will be the, the death of food. So I find it ironic that that solution of small holdings is the same vision that the author of the Declaration of Independence had, Thomas Jefferson. If you read Jefferson's garden book, his whole vision for America was a a, a nation made of small landholders. That, that's all that it would ever be, that it would be small landholder. Everybody would hold some small portion of land that would feed them. You know, one of his prescriptions for self-sufficiency was every two weeks plant a thimble full of lettuce, right? Like, yep. you know, like that kind of thinking that's in like, it produces its own seed. You just keep going, etc. Yeah. No, no, that's what that's what we need, and so I don't know how to get there other than by being the change I want to see. So I'm I'm here. I'm working with the the, the farmers here because um, I they don't want to bring in the chemicals and the fertilizers and ruin the rich soil that they have here. And 
protecting their natural resource. What a what an amazing idea. Well, they're 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 very interested in in protecting their natural resources. Um, unlike some like the Solomons or New Caledonia, they don't allow any mining here at all. They don't allow timber harvesting here at all. They protect their resources as as their resources. They're, these are ours, and you can't have them. They're not yeah. willing to sell their for a few bucks. So we really like it here. Have you had any, like, what, what was the process of moving there like? So you guys are both American citizens and you just moved there yeah. and stayed there and that's okay. I mean, like, you know, there's different well, immigration. You, you can, uh, you know, there's the tourist visa and then you can get that extended for, for a, about a year, I think it is. Or you can get residency, and to get residency, you need something like a job, or you need to invest in the country, buy land, and the minimum investment is $60,000. So it's not a lot. And then you pay a residency fee once a year, and after 10 years, you're eligible for citizenship. And they acknowledge um, dual citizenship, so you don't have to give up your your home country's citizenship to get a Vanuatu passport. But uh, if if anybody's interested in, in uh, moving here, uh, I've I've got some property for sale. Okay. I want to sell and get a yacht so I can go to the outer islands. And that, in fact, is our plan. We're going to move to a, a smaller island where there's not even any roads, and um, will it's rich volcanic soil, and we'll be able to grow there, and we'll be able to work with. You know, we're getting old and it's getting hard to do the gardening stuff and the heavy work. So we'll have young people around that can, that will value our wisdom as elders. Elders are very much appreciated in this country. And then we'll have the youth that, that, um, can help us physically. But, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's our, that's our retirement. That's something that a lot of countries value that we don't in the West anymore is, is, is our elders. Um, I was listening to a speaker from Nigeria recently on a, on a podcast about Bitcoin. And he said the two things that are most valued in our society is education and, and experience. So we value our elders and we value those that have dedicated themselves to a specific thing to become great at it. And, uh, yeah, that's something we, we, we have created a throwaway society. I think about like my grandfather would not be respected today the way that he was in the eighties when I was growing up. He just would not by general society, but yeah, you know, this is America. This is Pennsylvania, this is central Pennsylvania in the coal country. My grandfather, when he went downtown, which was like a town of 1300 people, everybody knew him. If somebody had a question about anything that he knew about, they came to him uh, even when he was really toward the end of his life, it was still looked at that way. And we have, you know, I've watched that decline over 50 years of my life. It, it is, it is really a sad thing because when you, I, I know that the kind of place you're living in, like that's the place where like the, the, the first person you go to is the oldest person, you know, because they've seen more. And that's something we need, we do need to regain. It's one of many things that we need to regain uh, in our society today. And by the way, there was a private island here for sale, Jack. Oh, all right. <laughs> you want to be your Jackistan. We just need, you know, half a million dollar Bitcoin and Jackistan might actually be a place. 
Um, yeah. Let's get a let's just get a few questions answered here, so we can let you go back to your beautiful island. Um, we kind of mentioned this already, but your book, you do have a book coming. It's not available yet. Do you have kind of a timeline on that? Well, uh, what I've done is the draft form of that book is on my website. I'm not a web designer, so I apologize, but I do have some information up there. Uh, if you go to the intro, introduction, intro, I can't remember what I called it. There's 12 sections there. And if they read through those 12 sections, that will be most of the book in draft form. If they sign up for the, my newsletter as I write sections of the book, that gets released, released as, as the blog as a newsletter. So they can follow that along and then they can, if, if they sign up, they can, you know, be one of the first ones to get it when it's ready. And, and that website is fermentedfarm.com, correct? That's correct. And I'm also on Clubhouse uh, once a week. I run a room. I might um, branch out a little bit. Um, that's an audible, an audio social media platform. Uh, uh, another teacher, uh, Master Cho certified teacher, uh, invited me on to help him with his rooms. He's um, gotten busy teaching this stuff in schools now, so I'm a little bit by myself, but that's okay. Um, it it allows people to come into a room and you can have conversations like we're having here there's no visual you can put links at the top so you can follow things together Um, and I do that um, generally this same time as this this recording was Wednesday morning for you and Thursday for me and okay. um, we have discussions every week about it, and that it offers a, a chance for people to ask questions live and get into discussions. Very cool. I have uh, your Clubhouse profile and your Korean Natural Farming Club for Clubhouse both in the show notes, which will go live right. about one hour after the live version of this video ends. That's in the video notes below. And if you go click it right now, this moment, while you're watching it live, there won't be anything there because <laughs> we're not done yet. But when we're done... It will show up over there, I promise. Okay, next up, um, what do we have here? I would also like to include what books do you recommend for how to diagnose plant issues? Or, like, more to the point with Korean Natural Farming, there's maybe some books people could get now that other authors have put out that you would recommend. Well, um, there's not any good ones, really, and there's that's why there's a need for my book. Um, CGNF. That's Cho Global Natural Farming, CGNF, is the international organization that Master Cho founded. He's he's getting very old and feeble, and so he's not doing very much anymore. But the Hawaii chapter of that, CGNF Hawaii, has a website, and um, they have a little manual that, that offers the basics. So that might be something okay. something as well. But um, she said something about how do I know what plant diseases? Yeah. And that would be another thing I would recommend when, when people are starting, if you want to go down the road and, and use the power of nature to grow food rather than doing all the work yourself, is when you do have a pest or, or you have a plant disease, instead of looking, what is this and how do I kill it? That's the wrong question. What you need to ask is, what does this show me? What in my system is wrong that's bringing in these pests? Often that's too much nitrogen fertilizer. 
The miracle grow glow, that dark green that we've been programmed to believe is healthy is actually not. It's too much nitrogen. It, it does great for Monsanto because, or whoever makes miracle grow, and because they sell a lot of fertilizer and oh, then you've got pests and now you got to buy their pesticides. How cool is that? Yeah, Jeff Lawton calls it the biocide cycle. As soon as you take one side, you end up with all the yeah. sides. Like, it yeah. this causes that, causes this, causes that. You end up with this never ending, you know, wheel almost yeah. like, well, I don't know, drugs for human beings. You take this drug and then it gives you this side effect. So you take this drug for this side. It's the same. And gee, it's the same people that make the same shit. It's crazy. It's like, the, it's like they found a business model that works. <laughs> and they're good at making money doing that, aren't they? And then they claim they want to solve the problem. And that they're trying to fix it so that you'll use less when their entire profit model is predicated on doing more. And everybody believes it. But I got to give them credit. Like, when it comes to making money, they're freaking geniuses. They might be e – but most geniuses are evil when you see them on TV, right, with bald heads and petting cats, right? That's the kind of genius they tend to be. Uh, Christine says, are rabbits a good option? And it would sound rabbits like – say it would sound like they'd be ideal. Yeah, in fact, for a while, I did have a rabbit. I had a little orphan rabbit. My daughter-in-law left for college and left me with this poor little orphaned rabbit. So I had a little rabbit for a while. And there, there is one input in, in Master Cho's system that is anaerobic, and that's silage. And that's done with lactic acid bacteria, which is made from, from milk. And, uh, so that, that's what's inoculated. I, I use banana stumps because that's what I had. That was good. And I would feed it to the other animals. The sheep wouldn't touch it. The pigs would eat it, but they didn't really care about it. The chickens would eat it. Uh, it was okay. But when I gave it to the rabbit, oh, wow, the rabbit thought it was in heaven. The rabbit loved that silage. Uh, the reason I would think that they would work well is we talked about, you know, more like controlling the location of the animal, bringing the feed to the animal, using the yeah. bedding. And and you don't generally raise rabbits by free – you don't free-range your rabbits. That's not really a thing. So they're ideally suited to that type of control of the bedding, control of the waste stream, et cetera. And then what I've always loved about rabbits, even though I don't raise them personally, is they're probably the easiest thing that the average person can do the most – uh, for self, for feeding off their own land with, you know, Nick Ferguson, yep. you can feed them with a bag mower, right? Like you, you grow yep. the right lawn and you can feed them with a bag mower. And I've even seen some pretty cool videos on Facebook where people have made like mini balers and they, they take grass and they basically make hay so that they have feed for their, their bunnies through the yep. winter. You're probably not going to do enough of that to feed cattle or anything, but you can grace a ton of meat with rabbits and, and they are an incredible uh, source of manure. So I, I would think that that would work ideal. Uh, and, and you can keep, you can keep them right on the floor, Jack, too. You don't have to have them in raised cages because that, that inoculated floor absorbs the and converts the manure so fast you wouldn't have to have them on raised cage. You could do them right on the floor. So I guess my only concern with rabbits is that they they're they're basically their urine, not their their manure, is uh, like caustic. It's it, like eats things. So can you it wasn't a problem. I had she had one whole run to herself. And okay. it, yeah. 
Interesting. Interesting. That might be a whole new way of looking at doing it. K-Bong says, can, we, can it be liquefied? He was talking about the IMO. Uh, so when we make compost yeah. often, we will directly spray compost. The other thing that we'll do is we'll put it into, like, I have this, uh, like, 30-gallon Rubbermaid gas trash can with a with a bulkhead in it and a nozzle, and I'll sit it in there, and I'll hook up one of my large cram pumps, and I'll pump oxygen through it for, you know, a day or so, and I'll make a compost tea, and I'll spray that, and it'll go further. I'm imagining you can do something similar with IMO. I, uh, yeah, it's talked about a lot online and I wouldn't recommend it personally. Um, okay. when I've used it, it, it doesn't stick around. When you make the solid form and put right. that on the soil, then you've got an installed whole ecosystem on the surface and in the soil. When you use the liquid, it just runs right through and it doesn't really have a chance to build up that soil foundation. And, Last last week, actually, this was the topic of our conversation in our, our clubhouse room. And we looked at uh, Master Cho's literature on this because he does mention liquid IMO in his um, lectures. And so when he talks about it, it's a completely different animal. He talks about collecting it from freshly cut rice stalks or some other kind of grain and after you freshly cut a grain like rice the stalks will get some sap that that comes up and what you want to do is capture the microbes that are in that sap so um, it would be like um, bacillus subtilis and and Aspergillus or are, are the are the two main components. And so then you would put some of the rice straw that you cut on the top, put that hard cut, cut rice on, on that, and then top it with some more and collect the microbes from that sap leaking out of the freshly cut um, rice. And then what you're doing with that, the use for that, is to make a liquid IMO, and that's to put as a drench on plants specifically to treat for fusarium, damping off, and other fungal diseases. Gotcha. So when he teaches liquid IMO. Is it just a different thing when you spray? It's the totally – because you mentioned spraying, yeah. like, to bring fruit into production and things like that. What are you doing there if it's not the IMO? Well, that is the plant – the plant um, juices. So you have, he he has a tonic that he makes um, that's angelica, licorice, cinnamon, garlic, ginger. And if you don't have all of those, you just use the components that you have. It is first fermented using sugar and a wild um, aerobic fermentation, similar to you do the other plant juices. And then it's extracted with alcohol. And so that is a tonic that's given a little bit in each um, formula. Humans, I take it. You just take a little sip every day. And uh, what it does is it, it strengthens, it's a tonic. It strengthens the immune system and, and, and builds, you know, innate strength um, and health. And so you have uh basically like two scoops of your active ingredients so the 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 mugwort tips if i'm doing green growth uh green fruit if i'm trying to get fruit to set or ripe fruit if i'm getting it to ripe so you have two scoops of your active ingredient you have one scoop of a natural vinegar brown rice vinegar or banana vinegar are the only two that are are used there's 
The information is in Korean and Japanese, so I haven't been able to get into the science of this. But okay. it's it's like vinegar is a weak acid, but these two types of vinegar acts as a weak base. So there's something about the ionization that's different. Okay. So you have two two scoops of active ingredient, then you buffer that with the vinegar, and you add in uh, a little bit of that tonic. And then you dilute that down to like 1 to 1,000. So if if you've got a liter, you're putting in a, a milliliter. And so a little bit goes a long way. And then you're spraying that once a week just before sunset so that it um, <clears throat> is on the plant overnight because they photosynthesize during the day and they do their growing at night. So you want that biology to be on there overnight. And then the sun sunlight will kill it. There's any microbes on there, so there's a bunch of processes that happen on the surface of the leaves, not just the roots. And yeah. so that was a lot of the stuff that that Master Cho learned from the, this, his teacher in Japan. So once a week, you're you're misting your plants with this formula, and then the active ingredient changes according to the the cycle of the stage of the Which plant. Trying to get so, out of the plant early fruit set, late fruit yeah. set, whatever it is. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, last question. Hanging Laundry says, what about medical care on the island? So uh, it sounds pretty remote. What if you need to go to the hospital or, or what have you? What's that like? Well, it, it is it is lacking, and that's one of the reasons they were so concerned and they closed the borders because we didn't have the medical facilities to, you know, put people on respirators. China gave us five respirators, but they were broken or missing pieces. <laughs> so they weren't very helpful. Um, but on the yeah, flip side, it is the, the food is by default organic. It's uh, naturally grown. There's there's they don't add chemicals to anything. Um, the, the lifestyle is less stressful. People are giving and helpful, and and so you have less health problems to start off with. And then if you do need um, an operation or something big like that. It's, it's a short flight, two to three hours to get to New Caledonia, Australia, New Zealand. They're very close. And you can get a, a medical insurance that includes flights out if, if you okay. needed such, such care. Well, hey, I've really appreciated this. Uh, again, the website, fermentedfarm.com. Um, I have, all the stuff, I've got the website, Facebook page, Instagram page, Clubhouse profile, and the Clubhouse club where we have the discussions that Sherry was talking about, all integrated into the show notes. If you're watching this live again, there is a link in the video notes below. Click that link. Once we're past doing this live stream, you about 30 minutes to get things up on the other side. All the resources will be there just like they always are. And uh, we'll also be out in all the audio streams as well. So you can listen to us on Fountain, send us some value for value, love and what have you. And Sherry, thank you for being with us today. This was one of the most fascinating discussions I've had this year. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a compliment. Thank you very much, Jack. It's been really exciting for me to be here. And I look forward to meeting more people from your audience uh, in, in a more personal way. Have just, I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you very much. Well, I told you that was a fascinating discussion. It's one of the best uh, discussions that I've had all year. 
Uh, really enjoyed talking to Sherry today. I want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that I do, you can help support us in a variety of ways. One of the best ones is become a member of the MSB or Member Support Brigade. If you do that, I promise you, if you just use a few of the, the, the discounts that I have negotiated for my members, you get your money back. It's essentially free to be an MSB member. Anybody who's an MSB member who it costs money to be a member, you're not using enough discounts. Just use some more discounts. Uh, there's a couple that pay for themselves. We did a whole thing on Start9 yesterday. Start9 Embassy Server, the discount on that, it pay for your membership for three years. Uh, a discount on ButcherBox is $120 a year. The entire membership is $50 a year. If you buy a lot of silver and gold, if you're a silver stacker or a gold stacker, as the more you stack, the more this is true. You, if you're monthly doing it, we have a once-a-month use discount code for JM Bullion, one of the best silver and gold providers out there. No one gets you a discount on silver and gold, but I do. Ridge Wallet, we got discounts. We got discounts for so many. We got several different CBD products. Uh, I've got discounts with John Bush's Brave Botanicals, CBD products, and Kratom. Uh, we have just got so much available. If you've not checked out the MSB membership, please do so. Check it out today and consider becoming a member. If you like the show and the work that we do, that's, a way, that's the way to make sure we're never not here. The other thing you can do is do your shopping, your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I got an item of the day for you today. It absolutely is not a survival product. Well, I guess it could play a role in pantry management and supply procurement and stuff like that that preppers do. This is an everybody product, and I try to bring you everybody products. I try to bring you ones that make your life a little bit better, even if they're not life-changing. Uh, I'm not even worried about the brand, but I do have a specific uh, version that I picked out for this product that's in on TSPAS now and on the main website. Again, you should be subscribed to the Daily Mail if you're not. You should be on the Telegram channel if you're not. One of those two. You'll never miss anything. They're, they're flat-bottom reusable grocery bags. You know when you go to the grocery store and they put all your stuff in those crappy, thin-ass plastic bags that end up up in the trees and you go to a creek and they're wrapped up in roots and they're just garbage everywhere, those things? If you take away that ecological disaster that they are, how about the fact that they suck? Like I said, they suck. They rip, they break, they, your stuff spills all over the floor of your car. So I know I'll get a reusable grocery bags, get some of those from the store. They're like a buck or two apiece. They also suck. They don't sit flat. They don't stay open. They're a pain in the ass to put your stuff in. They don't hold that much. They suck. What you actually want to procure your groceries and other things from stores, the best thing would be a reasonably sized box with handles on it. If you think and then everything would fit in there nice and organized and it would be a flat bottom and when you made a turn at like 15 miles an hour your stuff wouldn't tumble over you wouldn't be tying it in a knot or whatever and it would sit flat so if you're sacking your own groceries like we do because we don't believe you need to go to grocery college to learn how to put your groceries in and they worry about things we don't we just want the heavy stuff in one and the light stuff in the other so you can put the light one on top the heavy one in the cart it'll all fit that's it that's all we want out of it we want it cram full then it's easy to do. You go to Costco, those folks, the checkers there, they I'll let them pack. They love these things because they sit freaking flat. They're heavy duty. They don't fall apart. They don't break. And again, there is an ecological component here. I did actually a pretty long intensive write-up for something this simple. You should check it out on T-SPAS. These things are five bags for 40 bucks. Five bags for 40 so eight bucks a piece. 
Again, they won't change your life, but they will make your life a little bit better. And I even tell you what to look for if you're not really wanting a particular brand that I that I selected. I'll tell you how we found these things. I, I was We were at Albertsons like two years ago. So we're at Albertsons. We see these bags, and I'm like, I don't know. The bottom looks kind of thin material, but this looks like... So I, we bought two of them. I'm like, if they work out, I'll buy more. I want them in all my vehicles if, when I, once I have something like this. So I don't forget to bring them with me to the store. Just keep them in the truck, keep them in the car, etc. And so we'll buy some more. They were great. And after we had used them for a while and, and figured out they were great, we're like, we'll buy some more. They're gone. We've never seen them again. Those crappy ones. I know I'm going on here about a shop, but it, why is it so hard to get a decent product for something that everybody does pretty much every week or every other week? I don't know. I think it has to do with cheapness and, and, and resellers believing that cheaper is better because they'll sell more. How about selling something that actually works? Check these things out. I think if you try them, you'll be done. And if you ever forget to bring them out of your car and you go into the grocery store, you might even find yourself going back out to get them just because the bags that they use are such a pain in the ass and they're an ecological disaster. By the way, this is how you sell green solutions. You don't sell a shitty thing for more money than nobody wants, like the bags they sell at the grocery stores, right? They're built like a shoulder bag you take to the beach. That is not what you want. You're getting groceries. You want a lot of stuff to fit. You want to sit flat. You don't have to turn over in your car. So you build a better product that solves the ecological product problem, and then the market will actually buy it because they want it. Crazy. What I said at the end of my thing about the ecological component here was if you are a person that you, you, you literally don't care about the environment. It, it doesn't matter to you at all. You'll still want these. What I actually said is, even if you're a, if even if you personally murder baby seals with a coal coal powered cannon, you'll love these and you'll help the environment against your will. That's how you sell an ecological solution. That's what I try to bring you guys is things that actually work and make your life better for a reasonable price. So check these things out and just check out the concept. And if your grocery store sells ones that work and you can get them for less money, buy them there. This is not about me just selling stuff online, but if you're going to get them online, use tspaz.com. With that, we have wrapped things up. Tomorrow it will be Thursday, Thursday, Thursday on a short week. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I think I'm going to do kind of one of my variety shows. You guys seem to, to, to like those. Friday, assuming that I get enough material from my expert counsel, I'm not sure that I will have an expert counsel show. It might be another Just Jack show. I might give those guys a week to kind of rebound off the short week themselves. Some of them are holding out on me. I know they are. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own way The others will 